Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. In the early days of television, when shows were taped live and everything was seen in black and white, there were three TV networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. One of NBC's most popular shows in 1959 was The Today Show, which featured a host named Dave Garraway. And just like the show today, the host's job was to interview interesting people from all walks of life. The Today Show was filmed before a live audience at the NBC building in Rockefeller Plaza, New York. And every weekday morning, Dave Garraway would enter the building, cross the marble floors to the elevator, the door of which was usually open. Then he would say hello and maybe exchange a few words with the elevator operator, a black man named Gene, who looked to be in his late 50s and always had a bright smile and something to say about the day. Gene wore a standard cap and elevator operator's uniform and had some medals pinned to the chest of that uniform. But beyond that, he never talked about himself or where the medals originated. One day, one of the NBC executives suggested to Dave that he ask Gene about his background, and Dave followed up by asking where the medals came from. What Dave was to find out would rock the world of any TV talk show host today. This man had fought in two wars, World War I and World War II. He was the first black American-born combat pilot and flew for the French Air Corps during World War I. Before flying, he had fought in the French Foreign Legion, and having survived World War I, he fought again for France in World War II, this time suffering wounds from an exploding shell that he would carry for the remainder of his life. He could speak three languages, owned a successful bar in France's jazz-filled Montmartre district, was a prize fighter for a couple of years, and won France's highest medal in combat, the Croix de Guerre, twice in addition to four rows of other medals for his service in preserving freedom. Because he was fluent in German, he was asked to spy on the German officers who frequented his nightclub in the late months of 1939 and early months of 1940, and he provided valuable information to the Allies. He became a friend of many of the jazz greats and Paris celebrities of the time, such as Josephine Baker, poet Langston Hughes, jazz artist Louis Armstrong, author Ernest Hemingway, and French flying ace Charles Nungesser, to name just a few. He was a hero of France, and pre-French President Charles de Gaulle honored him numerous times. One memorable one, his trip to the White House in Washington, D.C., where he inquired about the American hero Jacques Boulard. And after a few days of embarrassed searching by an astonished president's staff who had no idea who Boulard was, ended up taking a special trip to Harlem to say hello to his old friend. And so Dave Garraway invited Eugene to be a guest on the Today Show, and Eugene agreed. And on December 22, 1959, the mild-mannered, bespectacled elevator operator shared a few minutes with Dave Garraway on national TV, paraphrasing a life that would fill a few thousand pages in print. They had a few laughs, then Gene went back to his job ferrying important people up and down the elevators of the NBC building before fading again into relative obscurity. And now, All Blood Runs Red, Part 1, the incredible true story of Eugene Boulard. Eugene Jacques Boulard was born in 1895 in Columbus, Georgia to William Boulard, 
a black man whose ancestors were Caribbean slaves who had fled to take refuge with the Creek Indians in a settlement on the west bank of the Chattahoochee River, where he met and married Josephine Thomas. Columbus had made its money on cotton, and slaves made sure the cotton was picked, baled, and loaded on ships to Liverpool, ensuring the wealthy futures of southern planters all along the Chattahoochee River in Georgia. The Creek settlement was a relatively safe place to escape to, and considered a frontier settlement for years, and a place slave chasers and law officers liked to avoid. Eugene's father, William Octave Bullard, was a big man, six foot four, who had earned his freedom in 1865, and who worked as a longshoreman loading the cotton on steamers at the docks. He was known as a hard worker, and had earned the nickname Big Chief Ox from W.C. Bradley, the man who hired him. One day, his job foreman, a mean guy named Stevens, who was known to strike his employees often, laid into William Octave once too often, and Chief Big Ox picked up Stevens over his head and hurled him down into a loading bin 15 feet below, injuring him severely. Stevens was alive, but physically unable to move. Ballard knew he had to leave, and fast, and soon that fear was confirmed when he heard that a lynch mob was coming to get him. He went home and told his children, I'm going to have to leave. I had trouble at work. I couldn't take any more beating, and I threw a foreman down hard. I'm going to have to leave for a while. You're better off here than on the run with me. I'll come back for you when I can. Now, Bullard's kids, all young, were alone, as they had lost their mom to sickness a couple of years before. They were still attending the 28th Street School in Columbus, and Eugene had learned to read and write an accomplishment that would serve him well in the days and years to come. His father had taught his children that they needed to learn so they could rise up in a tough world where blacks were considered to be inferior. Without books, they wouldn't have a chance. And he was right. With his older sister and brothers, Bullard absorbed his father's conviction that African Americans must maintain dignity and self-respect in the face of the prejudice of a white majority determined to keep blacks in their place at the bottom of society. His father did return, but things were never the same. He did tell Eugene and his brothers and sisters that if they ever got the chance to head for Europe, and especially France, where, according to William Brulard, people of all races were treated as equals. That advice would prove to be Eugene's guiding star. Seeking adventure and freedom in the world beyond Columbus at the age of 12, he ran away from home in 1906 and headed for Atlanta. In Atlanta, he joined a group of gypsies, an English clan known by the surname of Stanley, and traveled with them throughout rural Georgia, tending and learning to race their horses. The Stanleys again reinforced the idea that the racial color line did not exist in England or France. Ask anyone in Dayton, Ohio about the gypsies, especially the Stanley gypsies, and you'll get an earful. The Stanley gypsies are part of American legend and lore, and since they played an important part in Eugene Bullard's formative years, they deserve some telling here. Matilda Joel's Stanley and her husband Levi held the honorary title of King and Queen of the Gypsies during the time young Eugene Bullard found his way to their camp outside of Atlanta. Born in Reading, Berkshire, England, Levi and Matilda and their families claimed to have come from the United States in 1856 when Buchanan was king, as they put it. That's President James Buchanan, 
along with others of their people. A passenger list has Levi and his brother Benjamin arriving with their families on July 1, 1854 in New York City on a ship named Tri that sailed from Glasgow, Scotland. In a strange quirk of fate, it would be Aberdeen, then Glasgow, where a young stowaway named Eugene Billard would step off a German freighter bound for the second chapter in his life, as our story will soon tell. The Stanleys soon settled near Troy, Ohio. Shortly thereafter, they selected Dayton, Ohio as their headquarters for the summer months, and it became the center of all the gypsies in the country. And yes, America had its traveling gypsies, a part of our past you rarely hear about. My mother-in-law used to tell us a story of how as a five-year-old growing up in New York, her parents had stopped a gypsy from walking off with her in a crowded park. How much was true and how much was embellished, we'll never know. But there were societal caution flags flying for gypsies for a long time in America. As they kept to themselves, telling fortunes and raising fine horses, and generally only being spoken about in whispered conversations between drinks on summer porches. If you were missing a horse, blame it on the gypsies, who likely had much better stock than you did, but ended up getting blamed anyway. Each year as the gypsies departed Dayton for warmer climes, their caravans would go in procession down Main Street. Enumerated originally as wanderers, or tinkers, or Irish travelers, in later years, they gave their occupations as horse traders. After Matilda's death, Levi stated that, Our children are all learning fast, and soon our people will not go a-roaming anymore. The Stanleys took good care of young Eugene, gave him a home with them, and taught him a lot about horses, fighting, and becoming his own man. In 1909, after a three-year stay, a much wiser and capable young man, now 16 years old, left to pursue a bigger destiny. He soon found work and patronage with the Zachariah Turner family of Dawson, Georgia. Friendly and hard-working as a stable boy, Bullard won the affection of the Turners, who allowed him to ride as their jockey in horse races at the Terrell County Fair in 1911. He was finding out that they were good and bad white people, as well as good and bad gypsies, and a lot of learning to do about life. But the idea of living in a country where he could be accepted as an equal still clung to him, and he was always looking east across the horizon. He hopped a train, learning the skills from hobos he met near the tracks, and made his way to Richmond, Virginia, then southeast to Newport News, then to Norfolk, where he wandered the docks, looking for an opportunity to board a ship bound for Europe. No opportunity was offered by asking, so he found his way onto a German merchant ship and hid himself under some canvas until the ship had made it out of the Chesapeake Bay and into the cold waters of the Atlantic. It was March 4, 1912, and the ship was the Marta Rus, bound for Scotland. When he was discovered, the German captain of the ship took a liking to him, and although he only knew a smattering of English, he explained to Eugene that as long as he was aboard, he would work as a cabin boy, taking on every hard job there was, and sometimes working alongside the crew to earn his food and keep. If he didn't measure up, there was always the ocean. Ballard proved to be a capable worker, and earned the respect of the captain and the crew, learning German in the process. It would serve him well in the future. Eugene was not only a hard worker, but he could entertain as well. From the gypsies he had learned some song and dance skills, and his skits sometimes left the crew in stitches. When the ship arrived in Aberdeen, according to Craig Lloyd's book, Eugene Bullard, Black Expatriate in Jazz Age Paris, Bullard was taken ashore in Scotland's granite city 
in a rowing boat to avoid any complications with the port authorities. Aberdeen was at that time a busy fishing port with trams clanking up and down its streets. Lloyd said that the young American spent only one day in that city before taking a train to Glasgow. While Bullard was relieved to find he was not the target of vicious racist abuse in Scotland, Lloyd wrote that he did have one immediate problem. At first he had difficulty with the Northeast Scottish dialect and accent. The language the natives spoke was sort of like English, but hard to understand. Once in Glasgow, he quickly made friends with young Scots who helped him to find accommodation and food. Billard spent five months in Glasgow and earned money acting as a lookout at illegal gambling dens. Lloyd wrote there were occasions in Scotland when Billard found himself described in offensive terms, but he did not encounter the same level of racial taunt or rebuke as he had in America. In fact, the author quoted Billard as saying, Within 24 hours of arriving in Scotland, I was born into a new world. He stayed in Glasgow for five months, then moved to the larger seaport town of Liverpool, England. There he worked as a longshoreman and earned six shillings a day. He was still very young and light, and the longshoreman work soon built him up, but also wore him down. It was work for big adult men. So he found work as a helper on a fish wagon and doing odd jobs. Later he worked at an amusement park. He earned extra money by dodging balls people threw at him, money that allowed him free time which he spent at the local gym, Chris Baldwin's Gymnasium. Around the gym, he did everything the owner wanted, and his quick, warm smile and sunny nature made him popular, and he made friends with most of the boxers. Soon he was being coached and worked in the ring with anyone who the manager could find as a match for him. He started as a bantamweight, but within a year of lifting weights and working out, he worked up to lightweight. He was just 16 years old and fighting 20-year-olds with experience so he had to learn fast. After a successful 10-round bout against Billy Welsh, he was noticed by and became a protege of the renowned boxer, the Dixie Kid. Eugene quickly developed as an aspiring fighter, winning bouts in England and France as a welterweight. When he finally got his bout in France, boxing in Paris at the Elysee Montmartre, it was November 28, 1913. From the moment he first set foot in France, he knew this was the place he belonged, this was home, and that first visit cemented his long-held aspiration of moving to Paris. Not long after he returned to Liverpool, Eugene, who preferred to be called Jean, with the help of the Dixie Kid, joined a traveling act called Friedman's Piccaninnies. They sang and danced and made people laugh with their jokes and slapstick comedy. He signed on because one of their stops was scheduled to be at the Baltabarin in Paris. This was the height of vaudeville in Europe, which, like jazz, was catching on fast. He learned to play drums with this show, and that skill would later take him to nightclubs. Soon after joining, the troupe began a tour of the continent, where they amused audiences all over Europe and Russia. After Russia, they performed at the Winter Garden in Berlin, Germany, and finally Paris. When Friedman's Piccaninnies left Paris, Eugene wasn't with them. The chance to live in France was nothing less than a fulfillment of a dream for Boulard. He settled himself in Paris, found a place to stay, and was soon employed back in the world of boxing. Jean easily picked up languages and quickly learned to speak French quite well, and picked up a little more German when he performed in Berlin. His fellow boxers who could not speak French used Jean as an interpreter 
and he was soon setting up their boxing matches. Eugene described his fellow boxers as generous, kind people who showed their appreciation for his help. He was soon making more money in Paris than he previously had in England. Eugene Boulard soon discovered that his father had been right about France. He expressed his feelings like this. It seems to me that the French democracy influenced the minds of both white and black Americans there and helped us all to act like brothers as near as possible. It convinced me, too, that God really did create all men equal. And it was easy to live that way. By August 1914, the world was plunged into war and the French nation sustained a half million casualties before that year was out. A number of Eugene's friends were on the casualty list, but Boulard, not yet 19 years old, was too young to be accepted to fight for his adopted country. His love for his new country and his departed friends spurred him on to join the French Foreign Legion. Boulard joined his fellow American expatriates in the French Foreign Legion on October 9th, his 19th birthday. He went to the recruiting bureau on Boulevard des Invalides, Paris, and enlisted, and was sent to the Tourelles Barracks on Avenue Gambetta in Paris for training. Training was tough, but Eugene's physical conditioning for boxing made it a little easier than it was for many of his fellow recruits. After five weeks of training, he was assigned to the Moroccan Division, 3rd Marching Regiment, which he said contained 54 different nationalities. Eugene Boulard and his comrades were then sent to the Somme Front. The Moroccan Division, also called the 1st Moroccan Division of 1914, was an infantry division of France's Army of Africa, comprised totally of expatriates and honored as one of France's greatest fighting divisions. The French Foreign Legion had a reputation around the world as a group of soldiers you did not want to tangle with, as proved in action that stretched from North Africa to Italy and Spain to Mexico with Maximilian. During the major engagements of the division, the composition of the Moroccan division consisted of half Maghribi soldiers who were Algerian and Tunisian Tirolures, Moroccans, and the other half made of European soldiers. Marsouin's ex-infantry colonial troops, Zouaves, and Legionnaires, the latter half for which Eugene Boulard fought. The Moroccan division illustrated capability in the First Battle of the Marne in September of 1914 and the Battle of Artois of May 1915, where for the first time a French division pierced the front. The Moroccan division was one of the most decorated units of the French army and all its regiments were sighted at the orders of the armed forces at the end of the conflict. The Moroccan division was the only division of all French regimental colors to be decorated with the Legion of Honor throughout the course of World War I. It was on the Somme front where 300,000 Frenchmen were lost by the end of November of 1914. Brillard and his fellow Legionnaires did most of their fighting with the bayonet, at least those who weren't cut down by machine gun fire first. Battle casualties were very heavy. As much a warrior as an adventurer and boxer, Eugene participated in some of the most heavily contested battles of 1914 through 1916. Besides the battles of the Somme Front, he participated in battles at Artois Ridge, Mont Saint-Éloi, and the assault on the German positions at Suchet and Hill 119. Because of German atrocities, Legionnaire officers ordered that no prisoners were to be taken, so the Germans retaliated by declaring that all captured Legionnaires were to be shot. 
Because of this and the hard fighting, by May 19, 1915, they would lose so many men in Eugene's 3rd Marching Regiment that it would be dissolved, and the 2nd or 3rd Regiments would combine to form the 1st and 2nd Regiments. As an example, at the Battle of Artois Ridge, 4,000 men participated, but only 1,700 survived. Ballard's company lost some 80% of its strength, with only 54 of its 250 men left standing. Occasionally, before a battle, each man was given, as a means of fortifying his fighting spirit, a drink of tafia, a strong drink that was designed to spur a man's courage. Brillard wrote of it, You wanted to fight, sing, dance, or anything? Oh boy, what a wonderful feeling. Brillard was sent into battle again during September of 1915 in the Champagne Offensive. The battle and the rain started on the 25th at 4 a.m., and went through the 28th without a let-up. The infantry had to bear the brunt of the battle as usual because there were no tanks in the Battle of Champagne. 500 men began the battle, but at the first evening's roll call, only 31 remained of that 500, a 94% casualty rate. Eugene received what he called a little head wound during the battle. In the Legion, as long as you could walk or your trigger finger is not out of commission, you're good for the service, he once said. Ballard's regiment had lost many of their men and seemed to bear the brunt of every offensive. The unit was basically disbanded in October 1915 and Ballard was sent to join the 170th Infantry, also known as the Swallows of Death. This was the unit from which Ballard took his nickname, the Black Swallow of Death. The German nickname for the unit was the Chimney Swifts of Death. We'll join this unit and the then 20-year-old Eugene Ballard, as, after being wounded, he joins the French Air Corps and then the Lafayette Escadrille as a combat pilot, the first American-born black combat pilot in history. From there, we'll join him after World War I in Paris, in the Montmartre district, where Jazz was king, and where he meets his high-society wife, has children, manages, and later becomes the owner of a nightclub where, thanks to his ability to speak German, he becomes an Allied spy reporting Nazi conversations taking place in his nightclub in the months just following the German invasion of Poland in 1939, in Paris. That being a nightclub where he found himself rubbing shoulders with notables like Josephine Baker, who reportedly babysat Boulard's daughters, Louis Armstrong, for whom Boulard worked in later years, Sidney Bechet, and Ernest Hemingway, who would later include Boulard as a character in one of his books, will tell the story of his joining the French services again, this time with the infantry, fighting for France in World War II in 1940, narrowly escaping death from an artillery shell and becoming a hero a second time, and being awarded with a rare membership to the French Legion of Honor by Charles de Gaulle. will tell the story of his return to Paris after he was wounded, the loss of his bar when it was destroyed in 1940, and how he used the reparation money from the bar to escape Paris and Nazi occupation and purchase an apartment in New York City. Then we'll cover his friendship with mega-entertainer and social race activist Paul Robeson, where he, Boulard, at age 51, is pulled from a concert bus and brutally beaten in a post-concert race riot in Peekskill, New York, in 1949. And we'll share the story of his working odd jobs, basically as an unknown in New York City, how he's given a surprise visit in New York by one of his greatest admirers, Charles de Gaulle and how the now-reclusive Billard developed good friends in New York 
among expatriates and writers who wanted to tell his story, his interview on the Today Show, and finally the last days of his life, which he ended with grace, humor, and dignity in 1961. If there ever was a story for movie writers and producers, this is it. And if you enjoy our shows and want to catch many more, download our new app called 1001 Stories Network. That's available now at the Apple App Store, and it'll be there soon at Amazon Apps and Android App Stores. At the same time, subscribe now and become a premium member of 1001, so you can catch all our shows and episodes, plus bonus episodes and special features, all happening now. 90% of our archives are locked and ad-free, so when you become a member, with the exception of new shows rolling down the pike, all your listing will be ad-free. The links to our new app and to our premium subscription are in the show notes. Thank you, listeners, for the wonderful reviews you've been sending and for the huge response in subscribing to our show as premium members. Wow, I am blown away with how many great fans this show has. Thank you. And now for some of those reviews. This one, five stars, from Patrick McMick. Awesome topics, stories, and information. Thank you for the great stories. And this one by Miss Ang. We can't get enough. We love all the 1001 podcasts. John is a joy to listen to. All the episodes were informative and fun. And this one by Jag66. Great podcast. Not sure how I stumbled upon this gem of a podcast, but I'm so glad I did. I've been listening for quite a while now, and I love all the informative and fascinating topics. But my favorite shows are the World War II stories. Hearing about the courage and heroism of the brave men who fought and sacrificed so much for their country gives me goosebumps. Thank you, my friend, for this wonderful podcast. And thank all of you for taking the time to put those reviews at Apple iTunes. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Stay tuned next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. for All Blood Runs Red, the story of Eugene Jacques Billard, the first American-born fighter pilot in history. See you then.